Mark your calendars! The ADCES 24 Annual Conference parades into New Orleans August 9-12, through 12, 2024. Registration opens March 26, but you can start planning your trip now. Get ready to seize opportunities to connect, learn, and optimize your diabetes care and education practice. Stay tuned for updates at ADCES24.org. Hello, and welcome to ADCES's podcast, The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. In each episode, we speak with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role, inform your practice, and ignite your passion. If you enjoy The Huddle, please take a minute to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. I'm Patty Scalzo, Director of Diabetes Technology Initiatives at the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. Today, we are here with Dr. Shivani Agarwal and are discussing her recent publication, Racial Ethnic Disparities in Diabetes Technology Use Among Young Adults with Type 1 Diabetes. Dr. Agarwal will discuss details of the study and practical solutions that members of the care team can put into place to start eliminating disparities right now. I'm excited to be here today with Dr. Shivani Agarwal. Shivani is an endocrinologist and director of the Supporting Emerging Adults with Diabetes Program at Montefiore and an assistant professor of medicine at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. Dr. Agarwal recently published her study, Racial Ethnic Disparities in Diabetes Technology Use Among Young Adults with Type 1 Diabetes. Welcome to the huddle, Shivani. Please share with the listeners a background about your emerging adult program and how you became involved in the Racial Ethnic Disparities Project. Thank you so much for having me, Patty, and and all for listening. The emerging adult world has really been part of my research and career for as long as I can remember. So I built a, a transition program from pediatric to adult care for people with type 1 diabetes that started at the University of Pennsylvania and was very successful and you know really focused on the receivership aspect of transition. So how do we get these young adults into adult care? How do we continue their development? Uh, so they're you know they're going through pretty major developmental changes to try to increase their independence, and also with self-management, as well as just be, you know, young adults and adults in the world um, and trying to negotiate jobs or entering the workforce or going to college, trying to live on their own for the first time. So we really at the SEED program focused on trying to kind of nurture the young adult to start becoming more independent in their lives while also becoming more independent in their self-care. And with that, we really were able to build a, a multidisciplinary team that include, and this took time, but it included a dietitian, an educator, a psychologist. Now we have, um, because we clearly recognize that there are a lot of kind of psychological or psychosocial issues that these young adults face. And now we actually have a social worker. So the way that, that it kind of parlayed into disparities was it became very clear to me that transition, although hard for everyone, was especially hard for people of racial ethnic minority status and kind of in an underserved populations. And so I was recruited to Albert Einstein College of Medicine to actually build a new program, a new seed program, but really focusing on disparities. And that's where I am today. I have NIH funding actually to look at 
the disparities in outcomes across transition and also try to find, you know, potential mitigators to long-term glycemic control, quality of life, and healthcare outcomes for these patients. So that's my short answer. <laughs> Thank you. That's such important work. And I was surprised to read in your article that young adults of racial ethnic minorities are the fastest growing population with type 1 diabetes, but among the lowest users of diabetes technology. Yeah. So focused here on technology. Yeah. So what we've learned in our work. So there's a lot of work that's come out of the search um, consortium for diabetes and youth. And they look at kind of population level data um, in the U.S. and have found that the representation of minorities, so specifically Black and Hispanic and young adults, <laughs> young adult age, they're the fastest growing of all type one groups. And so it really kind of behooves us to figure out, you know, how to kind of tailor our care for this population. And, you know, unfortunately, they do tend to do the worst across the board for everything. So with regards to technology, my prior work has shown that while social determinants of health are a very important piece to why these minority groups are not doing that well, another big piece and one that we can, you know, modify, I think, more readily in our practices is diabetes technology. So we found in our studies prior to um, the current one that diabetes technology comprised about 40% of the A1C disparity between our Black and Hispanic young adults and our, our white young adults. And that was published earlier this year in JCNM. And so the, the natural follow-up to that study was trying to figure out, well, what are the disparities in technology use and what may be contributing to that? And so this recent study really looked at these really staggering disparities. I mean, we had 300 young adults with type 1. There was a lot of minority representation in there. And the non-Hispanic white group had about you know 70% use of CGM and insulin pump, while the Black young adults had maybe 18 to 20%, and the Hispanic young adults had about 35%. Wow. So really big, big differences we need to kind of untangle. Yeah, those are shocking differences. So when you designed the study, what was your hypothesis going in? Uh, my hypothesis really was that there are factors that contribute to these disparities in technology beyond socioeconomic status and insurance. So I think it's very easy to kind of pin the issue on, you know, the fact that people can't afford these technologies that are not covered by insurance. But we were finding, and, and ours and, and many other studies now have found that even in states where there's Medicaid coverage for these devices, there are still really, really staggering disparities. And in this study specifically, actually only one of the six sites across the country didn't cover their Medicaid plan, didn't cover CGM. And yet we still saw those huge disparities. So we were really looking at factors beyond socioeconomic status and insurance that might explain some of this. That was my hypothesis. <laughs> I can keep talking, but... <laughs> Thank you. So what were the study objectives that you outlined? We specifically wanted to, first of all, detail the actual disparities in technology use, so understand the patterns of use. And then secondly, to identify other factors beyond SES and insurance that might account for these disparities. And so we looked at a kind of a, a laundry list, if you will, of different factors that were kind of grouped into, into categories. So we looked at clinical characteristics. We looked at some psychosocial characteristics, which included diabetes distress, adverse childhood experiences. We also looked at self-care. Um, so we looked at the self-care inventory. We also looked at specific social determinants of health, such as diabetes numeracy and literacy. And are these tools also used clinically in practices? 
Yeah. So some of these were, you know, heavy research tools um, because we wanted to make sure that we were capturing kind of that domain. So for some of the social determinants of health domains, I wanted to make sure that we were kind of looking at it from every angle. So the diabetes numeracy scale has been used in clinical care. I don't think it's kind of been tracked as a longitudinal assessment tool, but the, it's called the DNT5. So that's a great tool. It has actual calculations and, and labels to read from. The literacy tool it can also be used. It's a screener. Um, it's a health literacy tool. So it's just a two-question screener that can be used very readily in clinical care. And then the other tools, um, the diabetes distress scale, while I think it has been validated clinically, I don't think it's used very often, um, but it can be used. And that really measures you know, different domains of distress related to diabetes management, patient-provider relationships, things like that. So uh, medication, you know, related to stress, the adverse childhood experience scale also can be used clinically. So yeah, so we kind of used a mix of research tools and clinical tools. Oh, that's great. And did all of your participants um, hang on through the whole study? Yeah. So this was a one-time kind of data capture study. So we purposely did that because I was very interested in finding people who are not traditionally recruited to research. You know, I, I think we're missing the population that's not doing well, or it's a population that's not being studied. And so I kind of painstakingly designed this study to go search for people who weren't coming to clinic visits, right? Who may not have even come to clinic in a year. Our recruiting sites were amazing at doing this. And part of that was that we had very good response rates up over 90% because we made it worth their time. We made it only a one-time survey that took under 20 minutes that gave us all of this information. And we really approached these patients to say, you know, we need to hear your voice. You're not heard, but we know you're suffering. Oh, that's a great way to do it. Did you examine past use of diabetes technology too, like people who had been on a pump or a CGM in the past and had stopped using it for one reason or another? Yeah. So every site documents this differently. <laughs> so we had a little bit of trouble. That was originally one of our main aims was to look at discontinuation of use in addition to kind of initiation of use. But unfortunately, um, we only had two sites that had documented that well enough to even try to look at it. And it just ended up being too few people. Okay. But I do think that that's a large, you know, that's, that's kind of the other side of the coin is getting people on technology and initiating technology is, is the first step, but there's a lot of data now coming up from groups specifically at Stanford and um, Barbara Davis Center that have shown that discontinuation rates are really high, especially among kind of low-income minority groups. And that's something I think we have to, you know, that are, that's contributing to these disparities as well. Yeah, definitely something to keep in mind too. So with the findings of the study, did you have any big surprises? What were your biggest surprises, do you think, of the study findings? Yeah, so many. <laughs> so <laughs> we had originally hypothesized that socioeconomic status and insurance would account for, you know, the lot of the disparity, just not the whole disparity, and that these other remaining kind of very important care factors, if you will, would account for the rest of the disparity. What we found was that while SES and insurance accounted for some of the disparity, maybe less than 10%, and the other factors accounted for maybe another 10%, but there, there really was a large portion of the disparity that we couldn't explain by any of the factors that we measured. Um, and that was quite surprising to us. Um, and so I think that the conclusions to draw from this are a few that one, you know, these disparities in a national population of young adults with type one are very wide. 
and they are there regardless of insurance status and SES. The second major point is that there may be more unmeasured factors here that are contributing to these disparities that we have to look into. And some of those factors may include things like implicit bias, um, systemic racism, you know, just the patient-provider relationships. So some of those kind of deeper healthcare relationship, patient-provider kind of interaction domains, you know, they're really hard to study. <laughs> and so, but I do think we need to look deeper into those. Yeah, that's interesting you say that because I know in your paper too, you had noted that there is a role of the healthcare provider in creating disparities. Could you discuss that a little bit? Yeah, so this has happened kind of across the medical field. And this is not a new idea that prescribing practices, and so there's these large studies that prescribing practices of statins, you know, even aspirin, uh, psychotropic medications, pain medications really favor white populations over minority populations. And so it creates this disparity in use, again, hopefully inadvertent. Um, you know, it's not like the uh, prescribing, you know, healthcare providers are meaningfully doing it or, or knowingly doing it, but they're inadvertently creating disparities here. And so what I was trying to say in the paper is I think we have to kind of turn the eye on us and make sure that we're examining our own prescribing practices. And, you know, it's hard because we're in entrenched healthcare systems and we may have behaviors, provider behaviors that we don't even realize, right? That's why it's called implicit bias, but I think it's time basically. So what are some things we as healthcare providers can do to address these issues? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, you know, again, first and foremost, is really trying to understand and, and be self-aware um, that, you know, maybe these Black and Hispanic young adults and even other adults, this isn't necessarily all about minority status. I just think that most minority young adults kind of have it harder because of the social determinants of health they have to face. But I think we have to be aware that those social determinants of health put up a lot of barriers for these patients that they can't control. Um, so giving a few more chances to these patients, fostering you know, a better level of communication and really involving these patients very early on in the conversation about technology. So even if they're not ready for technology right then and there, having them be knowledgeable about the technology, using it as an aspirational goal, using, you know, some of our shared decision-making that we learn as healthcare providers and hopefully have as skill sets or desires to use, you know, those are the kinds of things that will help. I also think that because these disparities exist, we have to think about creating systems of information access that lie outside of the provider, right? So, you know, every patient that comes into the clinic should know what a CGM is, even if they don't want it, or even if they're not going to get offered it. Although honestly, it's my opinion that everyone should have a CGM mm -hmm. um, if, they, if they want it. I mean, definitely. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So, you know, unlike a pump, which may obviously need some self-management assessment, you know, I think a CGM is a little easier. So I think being self-aware, creating systems within clinics or, or healthcare systems that offer information to patients, even if they may not be ready for that technology yet. And then, you know, my job <laughs> is to do more research to find out more. You know, I, I think we're in the midst of doing some work right now, qualitative work, um, interviewing providers and interviewing patients on their healthcare interactions surrounding technology and really what those were marked by and how those conversations influence patients' decisions. I'm sure that social support probably has a role in some of this too. And when we think about clinical settings, 
With your um, role in the Supporting Emerging Adults with Diabetes Program, you have a huge team to really reach out and help people. But what about a smaller practice that has a really small team? What do you think they can do to make a difference? Yeah, so that's a great point. So I should actually just take a step back here and say, I actually think in the larger practices where there is an educator, you know, I actually think that's a really nice marriage of a task for them. You know, the educators tend to have uh, more time with the patient and they really can be kind of the ambassador for technology in a, a less kind of high stakes way. So that that's a role that, that I think the educator has a huge advantage of playing in, in these larger settings. In small kind of private practice settings or smaller kind of clinician arenas, I still think the clinician could do it. I mean, things that are simple, you know, putting pamphlets out in the waiting room. I know with COVID, the waiting room is is can be virtual now, <laughs> so it's a little <laughs> harder. Um, but, you know, putting pamphlets out, I actually ask for a lot of demos from our reps and our reps are more than happy to give us demos. Um, I actually just put demos of the pumps and the CGMs in the waiting room. And whether patients wanted to, um, it's not like we were forcing them to learn about them, but a lot of patients would pick it up and then they would come in and say, Hey, what is this? I looked at this, you know? And, and so I think that there's really small kind of cheap free ways, if you will, um, that don't actually take up the visit time that can be utilized. And I know when we talked last time, Shivani, too, we were talking about the role, the critical role, really, of support ongoing from the educator and the clinical team, as well as social support, peer support. So where do you think we are with those things? You know, especially for young adults, but I would say across the spectrum, you know, there are the online community for type 1 is really strong. For minority populations, or at least for, you know, our young adults, they really don't interact with those communities because half the time they're not knowledgeable about them. They're not connected, you know, and um, I think they don't really even know anyone with type one, let alone a young adult with type one or someone on technology. So I think um, you're right that first we can connect patients to these communities, these online communities where there's a wealth of information and resources. And I think second, you know, finding that support person for that patient, whether it's a loved one or a um, you know, a boyfriend, girlfriend, or a uh, family member, but kind of engaging them early in the conversation too. We found with our young adults that they actually like that. And they find that they're more likely to make decisions on technology if we engage their kind of support person. So seeking that person out, making sure they're also knowledgeable about these technologies, connecting them with reps, that's also important. Great. Yeah, that's great advice. So what do you think would be Great advice right now that members of the healthcare team can do today to start making a difference in this area. Would it be implicit bias testing? What are some things we can do to raise awareness of our own bias? So um, this is a hard one. I think that we as a community, as a diabetes community, really need to understand our practices. So there are implicit bias trainings that can be done that's, you know, on a more system level basis. But I know that I don't know them off the top of my head. I can I can share with you, Patty, later if you want. But I know that there are actually individual websites where you know you can just take a quiz and you can see if you have implicit bias. <laughs> um, it might not be you know specific exactly to the role that you're playing right now, you know, as your clinician. But there are a lot of resources on implicit bias, and implicit bias training is definitely needed. I think the ones that have gone well are the less didn't and more role playing um, implicit bias training. So 
we actually, as a practice, I think we need to also take this on. And so I'm going to try to see if there's some way that our practice can do this as well. Yeah, it sounds like it would be a great thing for every one of us to do. And what resources do you think we can provide for our people with diabetes that have encountered racial disparities in the use of diabetes technology? What can we do for them? Yeah, so there are resources. So I think a few things. I think, again, information access is probably one of the biggest barriers because a lot of people are not connected to diabetes communities in general. They don't know what they don't know. So the materials that can be provided to patients really should be materials that have people that look like them. That's one thing we've heard. And I think more of the device companies are kind of understanding this now. So, you know, on the website, there are more people of different race ethnicities, you know, some younger, some older. And then the other thing is really assessing for literacy, because there are low literacy introduction materials for pumps and CGMs now that a group out of USC is making. I think they're going to be able to disseminate those hopefully relatively soon. Super. Not, I don't think they're available now. But really making sure that there's the written aspect, but there's also kind of the touching and the feeling aspect. So having those demos and really talking it out and having patients feel and touch those demos, I think really helps introduce the topic in a way that's both digestible, but also a little friendlier. Yeah, those are great tips. Thank you for that. It looks like we're coming to the end of our time, Dr. Agarwal, but do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with folks? Thanks. I went quickly. I would say that, you know, I think it's important that we remember that these disparities are there and we really have to nurture our relationships with our underserved populations um, of patients and just make sure that we're aware of implicit biases that we may have and understand that there are, you know, cheaper and more expensive ways to overcome those, but really to use the team approach and to garner support from the patient and their loved ones. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being our guest on The Huddle today. We've really enjoyed having you. We look forward to your future work. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. Today, we heard from Dr. Shivani Agarwal, Director of the Supporting Emerging Adults with Diabetes Program at Montefiore and Assistant Professor of Medicine at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. Dr. Agarwal provided an overview of her recent study and publication and shared practical tips about how members of the care team can examine the role that they play in creating and maintaining disparities and solutions that we can put into play immediately to make a real difference in this area. Please be sure to check out the show notes for additional resources. Membership at ADCES gives you access to the education, networking, and resources to improve your practice and optimize outcomes for your clients. Find out what ADCES can do for you at diabeteseducator.org slash join. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice and is not a substitute for consultation with a healthcare professional. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.